I would like to speak for just a minute about my wonderful mother and then give you a chance to share a little bit about yours. Um, <clears throat> I cannot ever forget my mommy's number one precept. The main instruction that my mother drilled into my thick head was, be good. Uh, when I was being dropped off at John McGinnis's house to spend the night, I would hear last thing as I got out of the car, be good. When my brother and I were heading to our fishing hole at Sportsman's, uh, we would hear the plaintive cry of our weary mother floating across the meadow, be good. And, uh, and whenever I was in high school and about to go out on a date, I would get a very stern look and my mother would tell me, be good, all right? For me, and I would imagine for all of you who were blessed with godly mothers, our mother's number one big precept was, everybody say it together, be good. Now, that wasn't mommy's only phrase, it just tidally encompassed all the others. Since my mother had many precepts, they were all summarized by that one, but she said a number of other things. Here were some of the others I was told, you ungrateful pup. I was told that whenever I was being um, not thankful enough. I heard that a lot, sadly. Uh, Two wrongs don't make it right, and then the ever popular because I said so, right? All right, how about your mom? Tell me some phrase that your mother said, uh, often one of her regular go-to phrases for helping you. It, it all helped you to remember the big idea of being good. What's one? Don't get kidnapped. Don't get kidnapped. That's so helpful. That's great. I have a friend who is a tour guide uh, in Israel. He's very, very talented, and, uh, and he's a little bit overweight, and he wears a shirt that says, fat people are harder to kidnap. It's, um, it's very popular. Um, who else? What'd your mom say to you? What'd your mom say? Come on. Yeah. Use your full, oh, oh, use the full name. Michael Wayne Broderick, right there, you just start sweating. Yeah, what do you got? It wasn't really more of a saying, it was more of an action. Okay. Ah, punch you. That's terrible. Okay, yes, that's good. That's right up there with I'll give you something to cry about. That's really great. I love that. Uh, somebody else, somebody in the middle section is letting me down. Yes. Ride the way all the way in a happy way. That is cool. And was it said with a smile? That would be, <laughs> no, it was not. Yeah, who had one over here? What do you got? Yes. <laughs> when giving her attitude, she would say, you've got the wrong mama for that. Oh, that's brilliant. Okay. All those things are wonderful. They're designed to help us be good. Now, now, put this in context. Lest we think of mothers as some kind of large ET, be good. Um, we need to fill in the rest of the picture. Listen very carefully. A godly mother never expects goodness without providing for her child the blessings needed to help that child be good. In other words, the blessings mom provides make the goodness possible. There are two true blessings from my mother that I hope we are passing on to our children. I listed them for you in your notes, which hopefully you downloaded uh, from online or you got when you walked in the auditorium. The first is, I will love you forever. There have been many times my mom has been displeased with me, even angry with me for good reason. But it has ever and always been true that her love for me is biblical. That is, it's unconditional. I'll love you forever. Blessing number two, I will fight for you. I will fight for you. Um, <clears throat> possibly the most tragic final words ever spoken are those by hikers uh, in the mountains who look up and say, oh, it's so cute. Where's the mama bear? Um, think about it. Um, <clears throat> mother grizzlies have nothing on human moms. 
Every great mother makes it clear from cradle to grave she will fight to protect her offspring. Two true blessings. I'll love you forever and I will fight for you. Now, please don't miss the connection. Any psychologist will tell you the reason mom's precepts had force was because of the privilege I received from her blessings. Without the privilege of her blessings, the precepts would have been alien. They would have been hollow. Now, mother's goal was making me a good citizen. How many of you have raised or are raising children? Raise your hand if you have raised or are raising children. All right, then you understand the very difficult job. You're basically trying to turn a depraved, horrible person into a good citizen. All right? Every child is basically a savage when they come. Don't be offended. I know your little cherubs are made in the image of God, and they are sweet as can be. In fact, I don't think yours have much of a sin nature at all. I really have always adored them. But the fact remains that if you don't train them, they will almost certainly not grow up to be good citizens. An untrained child makes a rotten citizen, right? Okay, considering that, open your Bible to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, go there. When, When we get to chapter 12 in Romans, Paul has already established these incredible blessings God has given us, justification uh, through the blood of Jesus Christ, sanctification with His Holy Spirit, and, and more. And now he trains us to act on those privileges by following God's precepts. And he lays it out in one big paragraph that works all together as a section, 12 through 21. Let's read it together. Rejoice in hope, be patient in affliction, be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints in their needs. Saints is everyone who's believed in Jesus. Pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless, and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, and a a quote here from Deuteronomy 32, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay, says the Lord. But, and now a quote from Proverbs 25, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for in so doing you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. All right, zero in on verse 21 right there. That's where we find God's big precept. The big idea is to conquer evil by doing good. Conquer evil with good. Think on that for a minute. Take that idea and pull it into your world, into that situation at work where there's somebody you work with that is frankly evil, all right? Ugly words come from his or her mouth, offensive music from his cubicle, or, or she's stealing from the company, or, or he is unethical, or she keeps hogging all the glory of your hard work. Fill in the blank. What, whatever the situation, whatever their sin, this person is a wretch. How do you overcome such a nasty situation? The, the, the same way we overcome evil within our own souls. By God's grace, we choose to do good. Keep that in mind as we work our way back up through the passage. Verse 21 is the big idea in this section. So we're going to start there, and then we're going to go through the particulars that the Lord Lord puts on this idea of being good. So we're going to work upwards through the text today. As we do so, we'll see God's attendant precepts. The ideas that flesh out the skeleton of conquering evil with good. The first one we come to is love your enemies there in verse 20. The quote is from Proverbs 25. Uh, Read it with me, please. You join me on the underlined text. Proverbs 25, if your enemy is hungry... Give him food to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. 
for you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. The thought is that when you show kindness, you provoke in your enemy burning pangs of conscience. I remember once gossiping about a person who had hurt my feelings. I'm sure none of you have ever done that, but just try to imagine. Not five minutes after I had finished sinning, and it was sin, let's call it what it is, by speaking poorly about this person, not five minutes later, my phone rang, and I look, and it was him, the victim of my, of my gossip. He wanted to take us out to dinner. The minute he spoke kindly to me, I felt my face get hot. And I was struck by the fact that my real problem, my real issue is not his infraction that hurt my feelings. It's my own sin of gossip. I could feel the weight of my sin. It was flushed on my face like burning coals. In fact, I did not begin to feel cooled down until I explained my sin to him and asked him to forgive me. Love your enemies. It'll, it'll burn them up. God's attendant precepts continue. Verse 19 says, never take your own revenge. Do you realize that when we take revenge, we are showing a lack of faith in God? That either, either I trust God to sort it out and repay in his time, or I don't. When I strike back, I, I'm faithless. I have done that. I've been faithless and avenged myself. You probably have as well. Let's do so no more. This is the word of God, and it tells us to never avenge ourselves. But I know what you're thinking. In that voice of Paul that I was asked to use by a child from Despicable Me, which we all know means, but he hit me first, right? Okay, suppose he did. Suppose, Paul, that person scared or hurt you. That doesn't mean you can become a vigilante. You're not correct to take your own revenge. You go through the authority. You let them deal with it. You can stand for what's right without becoming a vigilante. After all, if you take revenge yourself, you violate one of Margot's favorite sayings, two wrongs don't make it right. Right? Okay, look again at verse 18. Verse 18. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Be at peace as much as it's up to you. Pursue peace but know that sometimes you're going to face a conflict that just won't seem to go away. You, you have genuinely loved your enemies. You have forgiven. You have not taken revenge. And there's still turmoil. You know why this happens? Because some people are jerks. It's a fact. There are people who are just mean. And they're going to refuse any offer of peace. Isn't it nice that God doesn't make you responsible for that? He knows there are jerks in this now fallen world. He created us all. And he says, as much as it's up to you, be at peace with all people. This is a really important distinction because there are those among us who so dislike any turmoil that we will wear ourselves out trying to create peace. Even false peace we'll try to create. We will, you know what people will do? I know none of you ever do this, but we'll even lie to ourselves and blame ourselves for everything, mothers, blame ourselves for everything just to have some way to make a false peace. Stop it. You do what's right. You work for peace. But if the other guy won't take your hand, that is not your problem. And don't, don't quit the club. Don't resign from the committee. Don't leave the school over it. Leaving is very rarely the answer. Listen, listen I guarantee you that wherever you go, there will be other jerks. Wherever you run to, there will be someone else who just doesn't want to live in peace. That is life this side of heaven. 
Just do your part and leave the rest up to the Lord. All God's people said? Now, read verse 17. Verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. On the right side of our notes, I've summarized this as think about your last name. Let me explain. The word translated give careful thought uh, is, is a derivative of this verb, pronieo. Pronieo is um, it's something humans hardly ever do. It means to think before you act. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a verb that means to really, really, it's a, it's a deep word to consider, to think beforehand. Um, kalos or kalos, depending on how you pronounce it, is the Greek term that my Bible translates what is honorable. This is one of the most telling words in Greek. The, the, the translation what is honorable is fine, but there is so much depth here we need to understand. William Barclay wrote a really long chapter just about this one word, kalos. I want you to look at what Dr. Barclay said. He said, kalos is a characteristic word to describe a characteristic quality of the Christian life. In classical Greek, kalos is one of the noblest of words. And all through its history, it never loses a certain splendor. In summary, kalos means that which is attractive, that which is, which is admired, that which is winsome. Let, let me show you a comparison. I, th I think this can help. There, there's, a, there's another common Greek word, agathos, uh, which is used in a somewhat similar way to kolos. I think by comparing them, we can get a pretty good feel on what, what verse 17, what God's commanding us there. So agathos uh, means it's, it's good. It's translated good in our Bibles. Uh, but it, here's the big idea. It means what is utilitarian good, what's, what's useful, what is practically good. And that's fine. It does not mean a very, very little aspect of moral goodness in agathos. And it's non-aesthetic. The, the, the thing it's describing isn't pretty. It doesn't have to be pretty. It just works. Okay? That's agathos. By contrast, if you flip all that over, then you get kalos. Kalos is something that is aesthetically pleasing. And the biggest idea is moral goodness. Very little idea of practical goodness in Kalos. I want to show you what some Greek thinkers, some brilliant Greek thinkers and writers uh, and Roman writers said about Kalos. Um, Aristotle said this about the word Kalos. It's that which is agreeable and worthy of praise in itself. Uh, Cicero, talking about the Latin translation of this word, he said, it's such that even if its utility is taken away, even if it's not useful anymore, even if any rewards which come from it are removed, then it can be praised for its own sake. And, and Tacitus said, um, it's that quality which makes a man worthy of praise even if you strip him of everything else. Got it? I looked up first hour with actual human beings in the room, and there was a guy sitting right up here who has had everything stripped away from him in many ways this year. And he was just smiling. And I know him. I know him well. And he is Coloss. And I had to look away from him because I was starting to tear up and lose my place. That's, that's something that we're called to be. Inherently good and attractive no matter what. Okay, so look what God's commanding. Think beforehand about those things that all people recognize as good and winsome. There are lots of other Christians and non-believers all around us. They are watching. We need to grow up. We need to think about our interactions with people. Before we do anything, we should ask, how will these actions be perceived by everybody around me? I personally do not always do this well. And there's no excuse for that. Examining your social media, I surmise that I'm not alone. You also seem to struggle to remember every day, all day, that you represent Jesus Christ. People know your last name, Christian. 
Even if they don't know us, they see Christian on our profile or they see the, the church sticker on our car. If people see me screaming at the idiot driver in front of me while I have the Frisco Bible Church logo on the back of my car, what are they going to think? And no, no uh, hmm. the answer is not to remove the sticker. Okay, don't even go there. The answer is not incognito. It doesn't work and it's not what we're called to. That logo represents your family name. If you trust in Christ, you are a Christian. You belong to Jesus' family. Don't ignore your family name. Don't hide from it. Think about it. The answer is to study, to think, to work on how to be coloss. This has been an area of great change and growth for me over the years. I, I cannot successfully express how much learning about Colossus has changed my life. I, I, Dr. Barclay's explanation is better than anything I could say. I was only able to put part of this in your notes, but let me share this whole quote with you. He says, the New Testament holds that the best missionary weapon which the church possesses is the truly Christian life. It holds that men are to be attracted far more than argued into the Christian life. There should be in the life of the Christian not only a goodness, but also a loveliness which will make all who see it desire the secret which is his. Every Christian should be close. Every activity of the Christian's life should be colossal. The Christian should be clad with a mantle of graciousness. His every action should radiate winsomeness. Only so will he serve Christ. Scholarship can baffle. Learning can bewilder. Efficiency can chill. Aggressiveness can antagonize. That which tugs at men's hearts and pulls them to Christ is the winsome attractiveness in Jesus Christ himself. The attractiveness which ought to reside in those who claim to be his. Amen? Let's go further up into verse 17. Further up, further in. Uh, verse 17 starts with, never pay back evil for evil. How do you overcome evil? By doing good. Not by fighting fire with fire. That just gets everyone burned. You, you do good. A few years ago, I experienced a, uh, an evil use of my name. It wasn't the first time I have been wronged publicly. It won't be the last, but it may have been the sneakiest. What happened was some public leaders, acquaintances of mine, they used my name and an out-of-context quote of mine, and they used it to try and show that I supported a social measure which I actually strongly opposed. This misrepresentation, by the way, was put in 24-point multicolor font and sent out to 100,000 different homes. What would God have me do? Should I, should I use social media to sneer, smear these sneaky cheats? Uh, should I have gotten all of you to march with me in protest along with the Frisco Christian Alliance with torches and pitchforks? Should I have teepeed? Oh, wait, there's no teepee. Should I have egged their house? No. Verses 12 through 16 give me more input on this, but the basic idea is I overcome evil with good. Okay, go up, go up to verse 16. Read verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. I summarize this with the phrase in your notes, have equal regard for one another. Uh, one of my favorite books by Chuck Swindoll is called Home, Where Life Makes Up Its Mind. And uh, Swindoll tells this. He talks about a bunch of young kids who had a fort in there, as we used to back in the Creek Wire house. They had a fort. And on their fort, they posted these rules. Nobody act big. Nobody act small. Everybody act medium. Close quote. Amen. Let's act medium. Okay, how can we do that? How do we practice equal regard for one another? Well, there's three sentences here. Just go through each one. The first says harmony. Aim for harmony. Do do I aim for harmony, to live in harmony with other people? Number two, don't be haughty. 
associate with all. I must not see myself as too important to talk with anyone regardless of how they are viewed in human categories. Number three, stop, stop thinking you're so wise. I can confidently declare that every single broken relationship I have ever seen involved at least one person who was wise in their own estimation, and usually it was two. The Bible teaches equality, folks. Yes, there are different roles, of course there are, but people are equal before God. My left hand is wonderfully different. It has a different role than my right hand, but they are equal. Similarly, husbands and wives are equal. Pastors, lay people are equal. Even adults and kids are equal before God. God God is teaching us to have equal regard for one another and live in harmony despite our differences. So, So let's just use this as a checklist. Just go through those three sentences in verse 16. Am I aiming for harmony or am I trying to be right? They often are not compatible. Number two. Do I think I'm better, or I'm, or I'm entitled, I, I deserve, uh, or, or do I, get this, do I confuse roles with worth? Oh, that's a lesser role. Number three, in what ways, because I probably am, in what ways am I practicing self-conceit or self-deception about my supposed wisdom? Let's stop that nonsense and everybody act medium. Speaking of harmony, verse 15 tells us to rejoice and suffer together. Now, this is, is similar to Paul's earlier teaching he did in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Look up here, 1 Corinthians 12, um, you'll get the context of what he's talking about. On the contrary, those parts of the body that are weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body we consider less honorable, we clothe these with, with greater honor. And our unrespectable parts are treated with greater respect, which our respectable parts do not need. Instead, God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the less honorable, so that there would be no division in the body, but the members would have the same concern for each other. So if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. Now in each of these letters, 1 Corinthians and Romans, Paul's referring to the mystery that we are all together Jesus' body. Our attitude should be that whatever is good for one part is good for all, and whatever endangers one part endangers all. So, so we all, we all cry out together, ah, look, finger got a ring, finger got a look, everybody, oh my goodness, we're so pretty, we're all so much more beautiful, right? And, and in the same way, we say, oh my goodness, hey, get that gangrene of sin taken care of. Oh my goodness, that hurts us because we love you. That pains us. And besides, it endangers the whole body, right? Unlike all the disingenuous statements that you hear these days from advertisers, believers in Jesus really are in this together, whatever this is. We're always in it together. God's big command, overcome evil with good. Now, he fleshes that out for us with these precepts. Let's just go through what we've learned. He told us, here's how you conquer evil by doing good. Love your enemies. Never take your own revenge. Be at peace as much as it's up to you. Think about your last name, right? Never pay back evil for evil. Have equal regard for one another. Rejoice and suffer together. And then verse 14 has the one that may be the most difficult of all. Bless those who persecute you. Jesus said to pray for those who persecute you. Now, through Paul, Jesus tells us to go a step further. Bless them. 
Look at these commands together. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor. By the way, he's quoting Leviticus 19, which is quoted often in the New Testament and especially in Romans. You want to have some fun? Go through Romans and look at all the places Leviticus 19 is quoted. Um, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy, which is not from the Bible, but what people thought. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then Romans 12, 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now, you got to understand this. In in Hebrew thought and early Christian thought, to bestow a blessing was something that required physical presence, okay? In the thought of that era, you had to be physically present in order to reach out and and bless someone. By the way, that that makes some of Jesus' miracles particularly remarkable because he doesn't need space. Uh, He didn't have to be there. So in our current era, we see this lived out in a really dramatic fashion. Let me just give one example. The Quran teaches, I've read the Quran, it teaches, as I understand it, that Muslims should take over governments. It is the compassionate thing to do. No person can get to an eternity of heaven, eternity of perfection, without living under the five pillars of Islam, and you can't really do that unless you have a Muslim government. So out of compassion, it is their job to persecute Christian churches and to, and to take over governments. It is, it is the right thing to do. I think that is undeniably true to anyone who has really read the book. It is also true that in this age, radical Muslims have persecuted Christians with a fervor not seen for centuries. But there are hundreds and hundreds of Christians who have taken God's command here to heart. You know what they've done? They have moved, physically moved to Muslim-controlled countries to pray for them. And further, they go out of their way to bless those who persecute them. They labor to do good for the common good. God says, this is how you overcome evil with good. You bless those who persecute you. You reach out and touch them. And guess what? It is working right now. Muslims are converting to faith in Jesus in numbers we have never seen in 1,500 years of missions to Muslims. I want to show you a couple of quotes. Uh, the recently departed uh, Menish Nur, he was the pastor for a long time of the largest uh, evangelical church in the Arab world. It's hard to miss the obvious increase in the number of workers reaching out to Muslims and the number of Muslims being baptized. Fuller Seminary's Dudley Woodbury, I'm noticing in various parts of the world a significant increase in Muslim conversions to Christ. Why are we witnessing this massive change? I think it's because evil is being overcome by good. Christians who have every reason to be angry and scared are instead choosing to love. Instead of laughing, instead of calling names, instead of closing ranks, Christians are reaching out to bless Muslims across the world. Now, in full disclosure, this can lead to further persecution. Because in every situation, the forces of darkness always get angry when their numbers are shrinking. And yet the flash of pain we face in persecution gets swallowed up in the bright light of the eternal changes we get to see. All God's people said? All right, verse 13. Go up to verse 13. Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. This is telling us God wants us to give. He wants us to give internally and externally. We give to the needs within our church, corporately, individually. We practice hospitality. We practice it, pursue it for those outside the church. So, during the great plague of 2020... Our church members took many, many meals. You, you made hundreds of face masks. You volunteered, many people who were healthy volunteered in, in shelters and hospitals and, and, and homeless places to share the hospitality of God's family with people that we don't even know. And I want to brag on you here. You have given unprecedented amounts to the Benevolence Fund 
so that members of the church, members of Frisco Bible who are in need can be sustained. Well done. That's what Romans 12, 13 is talking about, sharing with Christians in need, which takes us back to the beginning. Go back to verse 12. Verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in affliction, be persistent in prayer. I, I, I think those three together are telling us to rest in God's plan. When you can't see the way ahead, when things aren't going right, when the world is crazy and decides to come after you, it can seem very difficult to overcome anything, much less to overcome evil with good. You know, for me, I don't know about you, but for me, in those times, those times of darkness and oppression, I always find my mind drawn back to a classic Far Side cartoon. You'll see why. There's a guy at a window. He's looking out. A big crowd is angry. They got all kinds of signs. And underneath it says, the world was going down the tubes. They needed a scapegoat. They found Wayne. They found Wayne, right? (laughs) Paul is telling us to repent of our silly independence. Because in these hours, our best choice is to rest in God's plan. You know, resting in God's plan is rather like abstinence as a form of birth control. It works every time it's tried. People just don't want to try it. People don't want to submit to resting in God's plan. We don't want to set aside our fears. Of course, I know, I know what you are thinking in response to that. In your Gru imitation, terrified, going down the roller coaster, you're saying, and just how does one rest in God's plan? Great question, Gru. Thank you for asking. Three words. Poise, perseverance, prayer. Poise, perseverance, prayer. See how the text says rejoice and hope? That's poise. The whole context is about pain. But when you're in pain, Christian, you keep your head because you, you know more than what people can see. You rejoice in a hope that runs through and beyond this life. You boast a poised smile when everyone else panics. Be patient in affliction, it says. That takes perseverance. You train your soul every day. You train your soul to handle the stresses of one day at a time. And that way, when you are really afflicted, you can fight through every day with patience. And we are to persist in prayer. Even when we don't want to, when we're mad or hurt or disappointed, we turn to God. And every time, He meets us there. Poise, perseverance, prayer. That's how to rest in God's plan. Okay, now we've worked our way back up to the start of the passage. And and I've got a question for you. There there were a lot of of attendant precepts listening to the big idea of be good. And how do we do, let me put it this way. Where does one practically find the power, the strength to do that? How can you find the power to overcome evil with good? The answer lies in our two privileges we have from God. There are two true blessings from God that are mentioned in this particular passage. Uh, One at the very beginning, one at the end. These are blessings that provide us the strength to press on. Remember, Remember... Go back to our discussion of the good mom, right? The reason mom's precepts had force was because of the privileges that we received from her true blessings. Without the privilege of her blessings, her her precepts would have been alien. They would have been hollow. When, When I was a little boy, there was a very popular song by Paul Simon called My Mama Loves Me. Any of you old enough to know the Paul Simon song? Okay, great. In the song, this man talks about all these terrible things that can happen or have happened in his life. And everyone is is capped with the phrase, the devil called my name. When the devil called my name. So it's this evil situation. And yet in every situation, he's he's totally at ease. He's never unhorsed by anything. Do you know why? Because his mama loves him. He says, oh, my mama loves me. 
She loves me. She'd get down her knees and hug me. She loves me like a rock. She rocks me like the rock of ages and loves me. She loved me, loved me, loved me, loved me. Such a great song. His mother's love is a truth. It is a blessing that cannot change. That gives him the strength to, to face evil and overcome it with good. And guess what? As wonderful as a mother's love is, it is nothing as awesome as the love of the real rock of ages, Jesus. God gives blessings so vast, so deep. His love is so unshakable that you and I can stand up to any evil. Now, there are two true blessings from God that are found in today's passage. The first is right there at the start in verse 12 where you are right now, and it's hope. Hope is found in God's plan. Yes, the world is full of evil, but Romans goes out of its way to remind us that all times are under the loving control of a sovereign God. And by the way, Romans further proves that God loves you, and He Everything that happens, he has a wonderful plan for you for eternity. It is true. He wants you to be justified by trusting Jesus and sanctified by walking in the Holy Spirit. There is wonderful hope in God's plan. The only question is whether or not I will trust him. Look, look, at, the, look at the text. Everything flows from the first idea, the sure hope we have in Jesus. So just think, when, when I trust the Lord's plan, I don't have to be jealous. I really can rejoice over your blessing. When, when I find hope in God's plan, I, I don't have to be selfish. I can contribute to your needs. I can rejoice with you. I can weep with you. Second true blessing is all the way down in verse 21. The blessing is that we are energized by knowing that good can, and eventually will, conquer evil. Yes, this world is full of evil, but God wants me to conquer it with good, knowing that he has a perfect ending planned for the story. Again, the only question is whether I will trust him. God's blessings can change me. They can change me so that I'm able to really live his precepts. For example, think about this one. When, when I leave room for the wrath of God, I don't have to stay wounded. I really can bless those who persecute me. When I know that God is going to set everything to rights in a glorified eternity, I don't have to fight for my rights. I can leave room for the wrath of God. I can be at peace as much as it's up to me. I can overcome evil with good. All God's people said... My mother had one big precept, be good. Two great blessed truths that allowed me to live up to that precept. My mommy loved me and she would fight for me. And her ultimate goal was that I become a good citizen. In that parenting, my mother, like all good mothers, was just imitating the Lord God. Look, look at it. God has one big precept, that we overcome evil with good. And in the last half of Romans 12, the Lord gives us two great privileges, two blessings of truth that strengthen us, hope in his plan and knowledge that good can conquer. Now you see the next part coming, don't you? What's, what's God's goal? His goal is that we become good dual citizens. I say dual citizen because God is obviously concerned with two passports. As we learned last time when we were studying chapter 13, God wants me to be a good citizen of my earthly country, but that's not my only citizenship. God also wants me to live as a good citizen of heaven by waiting on the Lord. And don't get this backwards. You don't live as a good person here in order to earn heavenly citizenship. You live as a good person on earth because you are a citizen of heaven. You don't earn heavenly citizenship. The only way to gain a heavenly passport is through faith in Jesus. Read with me. Everybody together, wherever you are, let's read together. John chapter 14, verse 6, line by line. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
I want to show you a beautiful summary of this whole study. It came from David Wade of our pulpit team. We were dialoguing as a team about this, uh, this message, and David wrote me this summary. This is so well said. He said, Wayne, God has overcome our evil through Jesus' sacrifice, and he will ultimately overcome all evil once and for all in the new creation. All God's people said? Amen. All the commands in Romans 12, all those commands flow out of his love for us. And they're there to guide us in living out the love he's shown to us. We can love him back by obeying his commands, not out of legalism to earn his favor, but because of the grace through his spirit that overcomes evil with good. If you're not at this moment sure that you are going to heaven, it's time to get your passport. It's time to surrender yourself to Jesus. He died on the cross and he rose from the dead so that whoever receives him as Savior will live forever as a citizen of heaven. Let's pray. Father, I pray for anyone studying with me today, anyone wherever and whenever they are in this passage with me. If they are not a believer in Jesus, I beg you to draw them to you right now. Jesus, God the Son, willingly died on a Roman cross and rose from the dead so that if you trust him, you have a passport to heaven. You have everlasting life. Trust him right now. Believe in Jesus alone as your Savior. And Father, for all of us here who are believers in Jesus, we are Christians. We, we really struggle to overcome evil with good. Thank you for all the details you gave us about how to do that. But I just want to pray for the big idea that you will write deeply in my soul that you have provided everything needed to do what you want done. And you want me to overcome evil with good. Please, Please convict and remind and empower us to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.